Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And welcome back. It's been a while, but yes, I have a new episode for you today. A long one as well. But a few short things before we jump into that. Firstly, and most importantly, this episode does come with a content warning for some particularly unpleasant stuff at one point. The kind of stuff you might get in a gross-out horror film. It's only one small part of the story, I don't go into graphic detail, and while I don't want to give any spoilers, I will narrow it down by saying I don't think this is really a trigger warning, because I think, while it's not totally impossible, it's very unlikely that anyone listening has actually been affected by the events discussed in this podcast. However, this one probably isn't suitable for kids. So, I'll make, let you make your own judgments, but I'd certainly listen to it first if I were you. Now, if you do decide to keep listening, you will probably notice that this episode isn't set in either Britain or Ireland. And you might be thinking, what gives? And I'll use this opportunity to point out the ambiguity of the term, well, quote, of, unquote, in relation to tales of the British Isles. This story is a 12th century story catalogued by a member of the court of Henry II of England, and in that sense, well, it's of the British Isles. And I absolutely reserve the right to use this ambiguity as I see fit in future, and also to potentially incorporate stories that are about Britain or Ireland, but not from them. So there you go. Finally, and let's see whether this one's a deal breaker. Finally, I will be pronouncing the word in question, Byzantine throughout the episode, except maybe where I get it wrong. Now it has now become apparent to me that Byzantine is the British pronunciation and Byzantine is in fact the American one. So I think I have got that one wrong, but it's too late now. And if this is going to be an issue for you, which I would perfectly understand, then please do turn off now. If you're still here after all of that, well, I suppose I better crack on with the story. Our story opens with a scene of a few wisps of white cloud parting over a dazzling empty sea. The sea truly is beautiful and bright, a breathtaking cerulean blue lit by the warm rays of the sun and not yet despoiled by all the discharge of heavy industry from centuries to come. A spectacular sublime view of the unspoiled waters is set out beneath us, the viewer. As the camera descends further, a great gliding seagull takes up a good part of the shot, and we fly with it. The gull has had a good life, a happy life. But for all that time, gnawing away inside of it, is the sense that there's something missing, some intangible, unidentifiable idea which its bird brain cannot quite grasp the shape of. A hole in its existence which will never actually be fulfilled. It'll be nearly six centuries before the first potato arrives in Europe, and almost a thousand years will elapse before the first portion of chips are wrapped in newspaper, lovingly sprinkled with salt and bathed in vinegar, before being seized by some descendant of this gull, 
and the species will finally find purpose and inner contentment. The seagull swoops up and away as the camera continues down, and it's about now that it becomes apparent that the sea is not quite empty. For below us, we can just about make out that the water is being disturbed by the wake of a large ship. A ship passing through the water at some speed. And the camera zooms in further, there's a jump cut, and soon we're on the deck of that galley. Banks of oarsmen, vast white sails bearing the imperial insignia. As the work of keeping the vessel moving goes on all about her, a woman paces up and down the deck. In one hand she carries a small sack, clutching it tightly as she walks. She has a general authoritative demeanour, this woman, and a brief glance at the heavily armed soldiers and sailors shows clearly that they take their orders from her. But stay with the scene for a minute or two, and it will become apparent in all those subtle ways, in their interactions with her, their body language towards her and with each other, that these men are not merely respectful of her, they are not simply disciplined troops, showing their well-trained and deeply ingrained obedience to command. No. These men are frightened of her. They're trying to hold it back, they're trying not to show it, to remain stoic. But all the slight tells reveal that each and every one of them is terrified. They're watching her movements, steeling themselves against involuntary flinches as she turns particularly swiftly. Now, this could be a story about her. Maybe even it should be a story about her. But it is not. But she does have a part to play. It's not quite clear what prompts her to give the order to stop exactly here. But at a point, she uses some unscrutable method to determine that here is the point it will be. She gives the orders, which are relayed, and the anchor is dropped, the galley comes to a stop. The woman shouts some more orders, and two large sacks are produced from the darkness of the ship. The shape of these sacks means there can be no mistaking their contents. One after the other, they are tossed into the glorious azure depths. From the side of the ship, the woman watches them break the surface of the water with a splash. There is a gloop, and they sink. Now she looks down at the tied sack in her hand. Was there a twitch there? Some of the men around her certainly thought there had been. They stepped back. As they did so, the woman, with one swift and decisive motion, tossed the bag as far out into the water as she was able. It hit the surface with a splash, and immediately there came a great bubbling and steaming at the point it went in, as though the water was heated in a cauldron. There was an almighty churning of the waters, flecked with sand, dredged from fathoms deep. Go! Go! shouted the woman, and the crew needed no more telling. They sprang to life to get the ship moving quickly. But behind them, the waters quietened and became still again. There were sighs of relief all around. And then, the sea exploded. To find out how we get here, we have to go back quite a few years. It's not entirely clear how many, more than a decade, but less than half a good lifetime. And we're off to the city from whence that galley will depart many years later. Constantinople was, without rival, the greatest city in Europe. And the wealth and splendour of that city was in stark contrast to much of the rest of the continent. Now, Constantinople had once been called Byzantium. 
And why they changed it, well, we can definitely say. It was because the Emperor Constantine moved the capital of the Roman Empire to the city in 324 CE, and in 330 CE it was subsequently renamed after him. And so, when Rome fell in the west, well, Constantinople, capital of the Roman Empire, continued in the east. And it lived on, even now when our story is set, many centuries later. Constantinople was a city of architectural magnificence, bustling commerce, the beating heart of Orthodox Christianity, the nerve centre of the Byzantine Empire, a place of undoubted academic and artistic brilliance, the intersection of myriad trade routes, the link between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, between Europe and Asia. Undoubtedly, it was the place to be. But like any great city, it housed inhabitants of all sorts. But as with everywhere else in the world, a great multitude of workers provided the labour that supported the opulent lifestyles and decadent power of those at the very top of the social hierarchy. And one such supporting worker was the shoemaker. One particular shoemaker. Despite the central role he's going to play in today's tale, we never learn his name. I could choose a Byzantine name to arbitrarily assign him. Basil was an emperor, but associated too much with Faulty and a fox in my own mind. Or we could go for Alexander, or Patronus, or Damianus, or Sebastianus Acarminatus. I'm not sure whether I'm saying any of these right, or any of the other names suggested by the Byzantine fantasy name generator. And yes, that's a real thing that exists. God bless you, internet. But instead we will call him what he's called in the story. The Shoemaker. Now if you're as deep into stories and folklore as I am, then when you hear the word shoemaker, your thoughts will go straight to elves. And an elderly gentleman, who is perhaps assisted in his craft by hard-working diminutive people who, by some ironic twist of fate, are somehow fantastic at making human-sized shoes, but awful at making elf-sized clothes. But this shoemaker wasn't elderly, and he certainly didn't require any help from elves. His background is shrouded in mystery, but not the exotic kind where there's ancient lineages to unearth, secret inheritances to emerge. No, rather the mundane mystery shared by most of us, where there's just not really that much to say about the people who we are descended from, and what there might have been certainly wasn't written down by anyone. He was one of many such craftsmen in the great city, and like many of them had learned his trade from his father, a man now prematurely and sadly deceased, and who had toiled away his life unremarked on by the great chroniclers of the day. But this shoemaker did distinguish himself somewhat, for quirks of nature and nurture both combined perfectly, so that within a few years of learning his craft, he excelled at it. In speed at first, what another did in two days he could finish off in a day and still have time for a good supper. And soon after that, quality followed. His work was as good as any master in the field, and his designs were novel and perfectly suited to the needs of each of his individual customers. Strong protective boots for labourers, intricate, elegantly patterned design for party-going dandies, sturdy sandals for pious pilgrims. He insisted on seeing every foot in person before making a shoe, and the result was that all his products fitted the feet of their buyers perfectly. One might say, almost like a glove, a foot 
glove. Like the reverse of the German handshoe. Kind of makes sense. Anyway, point is, they fitted very well indeed. Soon enough, his prodigious and high-quality output attracted the attention of the nobility. Word spread quickly, and the shoemaker's works became the must-have item of the season. The Byzantine bourgeoisie was all abuzz with talk of this fabulous footwear. In the immortal words of Kelly, Oh my God, shoes. The great and the good, with honestly more emphasis on great than good, flocked to his humble shop, and very soon he was turning away the trade of the poor to cater for this lucrative new market. And for a while, life was pretty good for the shoemaker. This could be a story about class. It isn't. But class does have a part to play. Now I don't want to turn this into a full-on economics lecture with a somewhat Marxist leaning, but it is somewhat important for the story to understand the differences in the methods of accumulating capital and attracting investment in the Byzantine Empire at the turn of the first millennium than in American or European capitalism today. For despite his dazzling success, the shoemaker couldn't simply get a loan or attract investors. He couldn't start a small factory, slap his name on the shoes, get others to actually make the shoes while he built the brand. He couldn't buy more land with that money, open bigger factories, begin to franchise other shoemakers, buy out rivals and incorporate them into his own burgeoning empire, start wearing a top hat and a monocle, develop a gaggle of well-to-do hangers-on who hosted the most popular high society balls, much to the annoyance of the traditional landed gentry who were forced to attend and show a pretense of respect while privately mocking the nouveau riche. He couldn't launch new product lines in a wash of flashlight bulbs, date an actress who tragically kills herself in mysterious circumstances force down the wages of his workers, break the power of their unions, marry another actress with a cocaine habit, set up a charitable foundation with his name on it to help secure his legacy, but more importantly to sell more shoes. He couldn't take over all parts of the supply chain until eventually holding huge swathes of the nation's cattle ranchers simply for the lever, but now find himself labelled a beef baron. He couldn't sigh in a dynasty, watch the money pile up into uncountable amounts, find that there was nothing left to buy, so instead use that money to destroy any rivals, and ultimately to control elected officials so that the very laws of the land were made in his name. Suddenly feel empty inside. Hate his grasping, vain and spoiled children, the boring, unending processions of grand events he had to attend, the obsequiousness of all those he surrounded himself with. He couldn't move wraith-like from country estate to townhouse to factory, realising too late that no one around him loved him for himself, saw anything in him but the wealth which dripped from him. Dearly long for the days he was just a simple shoemaker in a small house in Constantinople, which he now realises was the happiest time of his life. He couldn't eventually die, utterly alone and miserable, and have a funeral attended by thousands. No, the shoemaker couldn't do any of that. The structures of capitalism and class weren't there. There was no route to rise in social standing for a shoemaker. His trade and his skill had to rely on his hands and his alone, 
and yes, he could take an apprentice, maybe two, but that would be it. And more to the point, he would always be a shoemaker. Class in this place was baked into your being when you were born. Now there were roots out of it, but being a good shoemaker was not one of them. So he wouldn't become the 10th century Dr Martin. He was a good shoemaker, a good shoemaker he would live, and a good shoemaker he would die. And for many people that would have been enough. And maybe it would have been enough for him. Except that one day, his life changed. Now at a stretch, this could be a story about desire and lust. But it is not. But lust and desire do have a part to play in this story. The sounds of her retinue reached him first, for they were great in number, milling around her attentively as she walked through the city. A noble, like others he had served, but she was younger, and to him she was breathtaking in her beauty. As his method demanded, she was soon revealing her naked foot to him. He gulped, studied her arch, her sole, her toes, making careful observations as he always did. But as his hands brushed her skin, he was struggling not to shake. He had never felt as this before, but suddenly he was all aflame with the fires of passion. No words were exchanged between them, aside from that necessary to conduct business. But from that moment on, his body and soul were smitten, and he could think of little else but the beautiful noblewoman and how he wanted her, needed her. Satalia, that was her name, he discovered when he took her order. Oh, Satalia. Over the next few days, he poured all his considerable craft into making the most beautiful pair of shoes he had ever produced. He made version after version, discarding what would otherwise have been regarded as his best work to make something that exceeded even that. Shoes that would be exquisite, magnificent, beautiful, absolutely perfect to match Satalia herself. After days of toil, thinking little of sleep or food or other companions or of his customers, there was probably a montage during all this, and after all of that effort... He was successful. The finishing touches, the last shinings were done, and in his little workshop the shoemaker beamed proudly when he saw that he had before him what was undoubtedly the most wonderful pair of shoes he had ever made. Footwear that would fit those soft feet of hers as though she had been made for them. A day later, a servant of hers came to collect them, paid the shoemaker his reasonably large fee, despite the man oddly in trying to insist that they could be a gift. And then the servant left. And the shoemaker was all alone, without any hope of ever seeing the stunning Satalia 
again. She was a noble and he was a shoemaker and we've discussed class. For a very brief period despair set in. But you don't become the greatest shoemaker in the greatest city in the world at an exceptionally young age by being the kind of person who gives in to despair. And, somewhat more ominously, you don't become so by being the kind of person who accepts that hey, life doesn't always go your way, and just moves on. No, the shoemaker was of that breed of person that half the self-help industry seems to be trying to create. You know, get ahead in your career, Make yourself rich and successful. Do your podcast regularly. No excuses. Be totally singly focused on your goals. Give 110% of yourself to everything or don't bother at all. Failure is not an option when success is your destination. And quotes like that. Not that the shoemaker thought in these exact terms, but he lived these ideals. So now he considered what he could do. Plenty more fish in the sea was not an option for him here. He had, for the first time, a new goal in his life. She would be his. But she could not be so while he was still a shoemaker. Now, as I said, there were a couple of options for raising your social standing, at least from the lower middle class from which the shoemaker came. They weren't certain to succeed. By their nature, such routes to rising in the hierarchy are difficult and prone to failure, or else everyone would be doing them. Now, the shoemaker did know that at least one of the convoluted routes to enhance one's status involved joining the army. He'd had some dealings with soldiers before, on a professional level. For they say that an army marches on its stomach, but in reality that's only true if it's an army of seals. Human armies march on their shoes, and so he had done a number of commissions for accomplished officers. He knew that a highly ranked soldier could, in theory, hobnob with the nobbiest of the knobs. Now the Byzantine Empire was much in need of fighting men of all sorts, from tactical geniuses through to skilled cavalrymen, through to simple meat for the grinder. To demonstrate why, let's for a moment imagine a conversation. It's a conversation between an emigrant from Constantinople, let's give him a Byzantine kind of name, Boris. Boris is working as a groundskeeper in a madrasa in some remote part of one of the various Islamic empires of the time. Let's say the provincial town of Al Springfield. Now, groundskeeper Boris is explaining to the head of the madrasa about natural enemies, and he's furnishing this with some examples. Natural enemies, you see, like Byzantines and Bulgarians, or Byzantines and the Fatimids, or Byzantines and Venetians, or Byzantines and the Normans, or Byzantines and the Rus, or, of course, Byzantines and more Byzantines. All those civil wars, damn Byzantines, they ruin the Byzantine Empire. The head of the madrasa, of course, responds, You Byzantines do sound like contentious people. You just made yourself an enemy for life. You see, though the Byzantine Empire was a hub of trade, it was also, simultaneously, fighting on all fronts with all of its trade partners. Constantinople sat at the confluence of two continents, and it pretty much made it its mission to be at war with at least both of them, and sometimes another one as well. It should have been a difficult decision for the shoemaker, 
something he ruminated on for a long time. But no, he didn't consider another option. He took all the money he'd made recently from selling these better shoes. He took the small house he'd inherited from his father, he liquidated it. And then he took all the gold he had and turned it into the best arms and armour he could afford, leaving a generous amount over to ensure that he could begin his soldiering career at a higher rank than a simple commoner. And, and he paid his way into the army. Now, Satalia, for her part, well, she liked her shoes. They went very well as part of an outfit. She might even have got a mosaic commissioned of her wearing them, showed them off to her friends, and that was about that. She certainly wasn't thinking of that shoemaker once she'd left his simple shop. And she went on living her life, completely unaware of the torch being held for her by the shoemaker, who was by now a rising star of the Byzantine army. All the energy and skill he had brought to shoemaking, he now brought to the military life. He was fit. He proved to be skilled with sword, bow and spear. He was brave, but not to a fault, for he possessed a cool tactical mind that brought about success without having to pay the highest of prices. All of which won him respect from his commanders and his peers alike. And over but a few years, he rose through the ranks with exceptional rapidity. But while he never let his limerence for Satalia reach a point where it interfered with his duties, it remained constant throughout this changing situation. He never forgot her, and he was always clear in his own mind that every Bulgarian he brutally murdered, every battalion he commanded, every sword he shined, every risk he took, he did it all so he could become fit for her, his future wife. Any of his comrades would have extolled his virtues, his commitment to the Empire, and those around him would have been shocked to learn that within his heart he cared not a jot about either. He would have flattened the walls of Constantinople, burnt the Hagia Sophia to the ground, and slaughtered every last inhabitant if it meant him and her could be together. That's how you get what you want. Commitment. Focus. Not doom-scrolling. Do your podcast. The shoemaker continued rising through the ranks right up until the exact point where his star shone bright enough that he was reasonably sure that he would now be able to win the hand of the fair Satalia. And by be able to, I don't mean by impressing her with his non-euphemistic huge medal collection or tales of his valour related by some hired minstrel. No, what I mean is that he had accrued enough of the intangible yet ever-present social status points that meant that Satalia's father, who was the important one here, would agree to wed her to him. Because that's how things worked. And so he left the army, and he went to meet the man. Now what happened next is kind of unclear. I mean, the events themselves are very simple. Our young war hero returns to Constantinople, tracks down Satalia, asks doting dad for his daughter's hand in marriage exactly as planned. And Satalia's father refuses. Outright and unambiguously. No ifs or buts or first you have to collect 50 boar pelts and then we can discuss it. He made it very clear that his opinion on this matter would not be changing. The shoemaker turned soldier would not be marrying Satalia. 
Now, I can't believe the shoemaker had somehow screwed up the plan to get the right level of social status. He must now have been eligible from that criteria. So I choose to consider a couple of other options. Perhaps the father saw this young man, brimming with achievement and confidence, who was strangely obsessed with his daughter, and he felt something was off with the guy. Of all his charm and skills, Dad could make out the great looming red flags, hear those warning sirens, and he made a decision that this was not the kind of man he wanted his daughter to have anything to do with. Or, perhaps even more positively, maybe Dad simply went and asked Italia before making his decision, and when, after a lot of prompting, she vaguely recalled some guy she bought shoes off a few years before, and nothing else... Well, she wasn't really too enamoured with the idea, regardless of who he might be now, and the good father passed along her wishes as his own. And the shoemaker was totally unprepared for this eventuality. She was his! He wasn't the kind to waste years of his life. Failure was not an option. He would have her. This is not quite a story about obsession, though obsession certainly has a part to play. Now, the Aegean Sea contains a veritable galaxy of islands, large and small. As is the case now, back then most were not inhabited, but a few were. Places of picturesque villages made up of whitewashed buildings, sandy beaches, dazzling blue water, olive and cypress trees, the buzz of insects in an idyllic, endless summer. And, of course, back then, mostly undisturbed by tourists. But the island's relative remoteness from the mainstream of society, well, that also made them a good place to go to if you were slightly outside the mainstream of society. So there could be found strange cults, heretical orders of knights, banished North African princelings who sought to retake their kingdoms. But above all else, the sea and its archipelagos were a place that offered shelter and opportunity to bands of pirates. Long before any European ship graced the Caribbean, pirates sailed the waters of the Aegean for centuries, launching from hidden harbours to pillage trading vessels to enslave their crews and, of course, to smuggle. They would conduct raids on coastal towns and villages, carrying away the loot to secret coves, and, of course, they would drink grog in taverns with saucy tavern wenches and went, yar, mateys, in Greek. Because all pirates throughout history and across cultures have always and will always do those things. A strange quirk of humanity, that. But some things are just natural. And if we can just step back from the narrative for a bit here. I actually looked up what a Greek pirate might sound like. And in amongst the serious answers to this, I came across a website which did translations for Talk Like a Pirate Day. And apparently, the translation of R into Greek is... Which was not really what I was expecting, and honestly, the internet is a wonderful thing. So apparently with these pirates it wasn't yar, it was... Arr. Anyway, definitely back to the story. Now, why am I telling you about the pirate-infested Aegean? Well, the shoemaker was not giving up. Not one bit of it. But what could he do now? Go back to the army? But what would that get him? Stop obsessing over Zitalia? I mean, I feel bad saying that he should find a different woman because, God help her, but 
it might be healthy for him. Maybe he could just grow as a person, learn to respect the autonomy of others, and also learn a necessary lesson in humility. But no, he wanted Satalia. She was his. He would get her. Somehow. And that oh-so-clever brain of his considered the options carefully, and after a while he settled on a scheme. A less refined, less clearly goal-orientated scheme than before, and just generally a bit more insane, but a plan it was nonetheless. And this is how the shoemaker-turned-soldier decided to pursue a life as a pirate. I assure you, by the way, that this story will not simply be the shoemaker gobelinoing himself between different professions until he finds the one that is right for him and becomes a kitchen human. Unfortunately, that would be a nicer story. Now, this wasn't actually the most unusual of career moves. Truth be told, there was a bit of a revolving door between soldiers and pirates. In fact, you could really question how different the two really were. The distinctions were woolly, and if you're a fisherman whose village has been raided, well, you're unlikely to care too much for the distinction between an enemy soldier and a pirate raid. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that there's anything fundamentally wrong with being a pirate, a bandit of sorts. You know, some folk heroes, your Robin Hoods and your William Tells of this world, they have made challenging the state by being an outlaw a pretty noble and moral act, a revolution against fundamentally unjust authorities. You know, if a law is unjust, one is not only right to disobey it, one is obligated to do so, and all that. But for the shoemaker, well, his thoughts ran something like this. If he could meet up with some of his old soldiering mates, gather up enough of a following, prove himself, gain loyalty of a crew, then many crews, become the most feared and successful pirate of all, then he could eventually take his bride-to-be by force of arms. Yes, it was an outside chance. Yes, it would mean taking on the naval might of the Byzantine Empire and conquering Constantinople, one of the most well-defended cities in the world. But one thing about the shoemaker that should be becoming rapidly apparent is that the shoemaker did not think small. This all made perfect sense to him, and at the end of it, she would be his whether she wanted it or not, though which, for the avoidance of doubt, she most definitely did not. In case you're somehow confused, I'm going to spell this out now. The shoemaker of Constantinople is not a good guy. Not even a painted grey, morally ambiguous anti-hero. No, for all his success and talent, maybe even because of all his success and talent, he is the villain, the antagonist, the bad guy. And our villain took to pirating with the same focus and unfailing energy he took to everything else in his life. And once again, success high-fived him at every turn. Soon the former shoemaker had a loyal band of bloody buccaneers at his beck and call. And more flocked to join him, as every raid he led was more profitable than the last. Word of his prowess spread, first amongst other pirates and townsfolk on vulnerable coasts, then to merchant ship captains. Then his name became known to the very heads of the militaries of the various Mediterranean powers who laid a claim to the Aegean. Incredibly, his plan was beginning to look like it might just work. And I really do just mean beginning here. It would still take many years and quite a bit of luck to mould such a group into a force that was able to challenge Constantinople, and more importantly, take Satalia. 
but despite all the odds, everything was moving slowly in the right direction. The shoemaker was feared across the seas, the Dread Pirate, formerly of Constantinople. Now at some point in his pirating career, he got word of Citalia. She had died. She hadn't, by the way, been killed in some ironic raid by his pirates for which she was conveniently present for maximum narrative drama. Nope. She just died. People do that. They did so even more back then. Diseases were pretty common and often fatal. Childbirth was often a vicious killer. Violence was more endemic generally. There were lots of reasons people just died. And she just did. His beloved, his true love, his reason for existing for so many years, his reason for becoming a pirate king. It was all gone. Just like that. That wasn't correct. That couldn't happen. It's difficult to properly express what this did to the psyche of a man already so broken. The one remaining string holding up the suspended grand piano of his sanity snapped. And the whole thing came crashing down with a horrible noise. He looked around at his fervent followers, the wealth he had amassed, his ships and his crews, all of it. All that he had achieved since he stopped making shoes. And maybe at that point he could have still gone back to a moderately sized house in Constantinople. A life of making shoes, finding himself a wife that he loved, settle down, raise a son to take on the business, lead that average life, weathering the sorrows, treasuring the joys, to age and to die happily with a life lived simply and well. And maybe that option occurred to him now, as he considered his position, the power he had, the people he'd surrounded himself with, all for a wife who now would never be his. But he was too far gone to take that option. So he did none of that. At first, he burst into tears, let himself wallow in misery. But then, to the horror and disdain of his followers... He arranged a truce with the Byzantine navy, offered up captured booty, wanted men, whatever was necessary to extricate himself from the position he had worked himself into. Within days, much of his pirate empire had collapsed, and the once-feared outlaw discarded his identity and made with all due haste for Satalia's funeral. He couldn't attend officially, of course, but like many other uninvited funeral guests, he lurked in the tree line, watched the priests wafting incense over the coffins from their hanging censers, watched the mourners with their anachronistic black umbrellas, watched as Satalia was eventually buried. The shoemaker sobbed through it all, quietly, so the family didn't hear, but he sobbed. Everything had been so cruelly taken from him, so unfair, the love of his life. But he couldn't stop planning, and soon enough he had a plan again. A more terrible plan than any that had come before. You see, he knew where his love was buried. And the next night, he was back. With a shovel.
dug and he dug, throwing great piles of dirt up around him, and eventually he reached the coffin. No one was around to stop him. Cemeteries were rural affairs away from the city, and no one visited them at night. But he was not afraid of whatever lurked there, and in truth, the worst thing in that cemetery that evening was him. He paused just for a moment, and then he smashed through the coffin lid, tore pieces of wood away, and there she was, his beloved, the one he'd set eyes on all those years before, a cold corpse who had suffered before she died, but to him still bore resemblance enough for the shoemaker to believe she was there in front of him. Finally, finally, this would be his day. (laughs) Now there are many who have tried to defy death. Orpheus, Mr Tea Time, Bill and Ted. The shoemaker was of the sort who had the hubris to attempt it, but he had no route into the underworld. But what he did have was passion, and he had an overwhelmingly obscene sense of entitlement. He would not be denied. And so, if the sheer horror of what is happening here has not yet become clear to you, well, let me unfortunately make it so. The shoemaker, to quote, lay with the dead woman as if she was alive. This is a story about fucking a corpse. And this is also a story about what happens next. He rose after committing the most abominable, horrendous, disgusting act. (laughs) He had done it. He had beaten death. Death could not hold her. He climbed out of the hole he had dug. He lay there laughing and panting on the side. Take that. (laughs) He had done it. And he heard a voice. The shoemaker turned soldier, turned pirate, turned necrophile, looked around wildly, eyes madly darting. Had someone seen? No, he didn't care. Let them see. See how powerful was his love. But no, there was no one. The voice grew louder. And it wasn't a normal voice. It was speaking to him, he realised now. A terrible voice. Now you've done this, you have an obligation to that which you have wrought. It snarled at him from every direction, and seemingly from inside his own skull, all at the same time. Return at the allotted time, and take your progeny. What? No. No, No, it couldn't mean. The shoemaker looked down into the hole at the defiled body. The corpse lay there as lifeless as before, and suddenly, for the first time that he could remember, he was frightened of the corpse, of the voice. It looked to him now more and more like what it actually was, a collection of flesh and bones and skin starting to decay. No trace of a human being lingered in it, A modicum of doubt crept in, but the voice screamed at him, Bury it! Bury it and return! Nine months to the day, return! Now truly terrified for possibly the first time in his life, the shoemaker took up the shovel and piled earth back on the body hurriedly. Desperately he tried to make it look undisturbed, batting the earth down, 
as all the while the thing in his mind and in the air screeched. He had just about finished his awful work when the first rooster crowed, and he fled just before the rosy-fingered dawn could break on such an unholy scene. Now I'm not even going to speculate on how the shoemaker spent the intervening nine months. Sufficient for the purposes of this story to say that he did indeed return. As time passed, perhaps he worried about how the memory of that voice was simply some trick of the immense stress he had been under. The effect on his adult mind of breaking one of society's most strongly held taboos. There couldn't really be something there, could there? That wasn't how any of this worked. He surely had just been going mad. But he wasn't sure enough of that, and not brave enough to take the chance. Nine months on, with a sense of awful foreboding, the shoemaker returned to the scene of his crime, shovel once again in hand. Whereas before it had been light, this time the night was dark, thick clouds covered the moon and stars, and he had to take a lamp with him to see in the inky blackness. This time he was not immune to the terror of that place, and to the awfulness of what he now set out to do. The screeches of nocturnal birds caused him to jump many a time on his slow walk through the necropolis. His blood ran cold, and he gripped the light in his shovel firmly, and he shook. But for all his many, many faults, he was a tough man, and he fought through all of it, reached the spot... Recalling what was there, he found himself almost sobbing with the frightful anticipation. But he pressed on still, broke ground. After all those months, the soil had settled, and he was conscious that with every shovel full of compacted soil he lifted, he was getting closer to her again. He dug, less enthusiastically this time, shaking all the while. There couldn't be anything there. No, no, there couldn't be. The air of the night drew in oppressively around him, cloying at him, and he found himself sweating, found himself gasping, taking in deep, rapid breaths. But he laboured on still, and eventually, inevitably, he found her. There could be no mistaking the corpse for what it was now. A grinning skull with scraps of hair and skin was the first thing to emerge from the earth, the odd worm with it. And now the voice returned, that hideous voice that sounded like damnation and Stygian depths. That's it. Keep digging. He was mad now, he realised. But he cleared more of the detritus from the corpse, started scraping with his hands to expose rotting clothing, bones, decaying flesh. No, no, it couldn't be. The belly of the corpse was swelled, bloated as if there was something inside. And then, the cadaver. The cadaver which was barely even whole anymore. That cadaver somehow twitched and spasmed. The shoemaker leapt backwards, hit the wall of the hole he had dug with a hard thud. Stretched out in front of him was a hideously writhing corpse. But there was no life in it. There was no life in the corpse. 
but something was somehow working its way out of the body. Yes, that's it, yes. You know what you must do. Help your child along. And what a gruesome tableau this makes. The eerie, pitch-black night, with the shoemaker acting as midwife to the silent, half-decomposed corpse that was nevertheless somehow birthing some godforsaken horror. It was not a typical birth. The corpse didn't push. Oxygen was completely superfluous to requirements. And yet out it came, his blasphemous offspring. A monstrosity conceived of an unholy, unspeakable union. Surely, here and now the shoemaker would meet his horrendous and thoroughly justified fate. A revenge from beyond the grave. So what did the shoemaker find? Cradling in his arms? Some hellboy-esque fiend? With only the very dim light of the lantern, the shoemaker couldn't quite make it out. He had to feel around the fleshy, bony thing to determine what it was. This wasn't a babe of any description. Not human or demonic. No, he could scarce believe it as he felt the weight of it, groped around it. No, he knew what this was. It was a head. An adult human head severed from a body that had never been. In shock at the realisation, he dropped his own cursed spawn onto the corpse of his post-mortem lover. The head didn't make a sound. For all its recent movements, it now seemed as though it had been born as devoid of life as its mother. The shoemaker stared down at the shape. And at that moment, the voice came again. It screamed some frustratingly limited exposition at him. Take it, it's yours. But remember this. Show your child's face only to your enemies, and never look at it yourself. For the sight of it is so horrific that it will take the lives of those who behold it. It will take their lives instantly. At this news, the shoemaker first recoiled further, desperately trying to avoid setting his eyes upon it. But as the disembodied voice raged on and on about the deadliness of this head that had never known a neck, well, something of the steely ambition of the man who he had been before the necrophilia, that began to worm its way back into the shoemaker's patterns of thought. This unnatural child of his, if the voice could be believed, well, it sounded like in the right hands it could be a weapon, potentially. A powerful and terrible weapon. Yes, now you're getting it. And the mad shoemaker allowed a smile to creep across his face. He reached carefully now to pick up the head, wrapped it tightly in the clothes he had discarded as he dug. Later he would carefully wrap the awful thing in a great many layers of fine cloth, bound tightly around it, and store it in a particular box for now. Well, now he had to test it out, of course. This time he left Italia's desecrated grave just as it was. He had no need now to cover his crimes. And out of that great rural cemetery he wandered. And luck would have it that it wasn't hard to find someone who was up at this time of night. A poor unfortunate on an errand. You there, said the shoemaker. 
Yes. Take a look at this for me, would you? And the shoemaker, he held out the head in front of him, taking care not to look at it himself, and instead looking straight at his intended victim, bearing an expression of first macabre curiosity, and then unrestrained glee. There wasn't a dramatic scream, no clutching at the throat or an explosion of blood, and the man didn't turn to stone, which might well have been expected. None of that. Instead, there was a slump. The light was immediately extinguished in his eyes, as if a switch had been flicked. The man's body crumpled and fell to the ground without ceremony. The shoemaker cautiously made his way over to the body. He rolled it over poked at it with his shoe gingerly. After a while, he was in no doubt. Where an instant before there had been a living man, now there was nothing but an empty corpse. (laughs) It works! It works! With this! Oh, what can't I do with this? And if you were wondering, as I was when I first chanced upon this tale, if you were wondering where the punishment is here for breaking all laws of gods and morality, where the comeuppance is for being a creepy, shudder-inducing villain, why does this horrible act result in him gaining, you might be wondering? I slept with a corpse, and all I got was this horrifying murder head. Don't put that on a t-shirt. But you see that, unfortunately is kind of how life works. Karma really is a toothless old dog. And whatever evil forces were helping the shoemaker in that cemetery, well, they were evil. And unlike the folkloric devil, who seems so often to do God's will by punishing evildoers, these dark forces knew what they wanted, and they knew how to get it. They delighted in the literal birthing of more terrible evil into the world. And the shoemaker, the shoemaker was that terrible evil. Now he had one disembodied murder head, which he added to his inventory, and he began his career as a true supervillain. He started by returning to the pirates he'd so unceremoniously dumped about ten months previous. That was, those who hadn't already been executed or imprisoned after he made a truce, of course. He reckoned he needed goons, and he knew these goons. I can only imagine there was quite vociferous objection from whoever had taken over. It's you! Betrayer! Didn't care if we lived or died, did you? Discarded us? And now you want back in, you treacherous landlubber? As if. Right, me hearties? Yar, went the hearties. Well, yes, that isn't entirely unexpected, said the shoemaker. But let me present to you something I think you might find quite convincing. And the shoemaker pops open the box he's brought with him. His hand comes out holding something that no one still living quite gets a good look at. There's a thud on the deck. And the new pirate leader who was objecting so... He is no more. Swords are drawn. The shoemaker turns and a whole swathe of swarthy sea dogs drop dead. One brave soul on the other side of the shoemaker leaps forward towards him. 
The shoemaker quickly spins towards the unfortunate, whose eyes never have time to process what he's looking at. His corpse falls hard mid-lunge, and his sword clatters away harmlessly. The unlucky men, who just happen to be standing behind him, fall with him. In the space of ten seconds, about half the men on deck have perished silently. Anyone else got any objections? No? Okay, so, would you like to join me in putting this world to flame? All the booty and grog you could ever wish for. Or, well, you don't have to join up. And he indicated the bodies. I'll leave it up to you. And a great resounding cheer went up from all the assembled. A cheer that sounded a little too forced, a little too full of astonished terror for the shoemaker's liking. But he wasn't going to quibble. They'd get better in time. And what did he even want now? The one purpose of his life that had powered him for all those years, well, she was gone. It was just the shoemaker and his dead son from the bowels of hell now. So what did this potential addition to the Dream Daddy lineup actually want from his life? So much to choose from, so many things he could do. But you know, when you're in possession of a murdering demon head, it kind of funnels the choices you feel you can make. And so the shoemaker gave in, and accepted that now, now he would devote his life to the very oldest cliché. He clenched his fists, threw back his head, looked up at the camera directly above him and pronounced, The world will bow before me. I shall conquer it all. (laughs) For some reason, I'm now imagining the disembodied head next to him is dressed in a green dog costume. Picture that. And the shoemaker and his pirate followers set out to conquer everything. And if you're a stickler for detail, you might be thinking, that's ridiculous. One head that kills people against whole armies. Yes, this is pre-gunpowder, but there are bows, notoriously good at killing people from quite far away. And failing that, you know, there's rocks. And those of you with a passing familiarity with Greek myth, which, let's face it, if you're listening to this is all of you, will already be wondering about particularly shiny shields. But when it came to murder heads, the shoemaker had it easy for this head worked over a surprising distance. It wasn't like they really had to look hard into the ungodly dead eyes of the thing. No, that would be far too inconvenient. Rather, the shoemaker kind of just had to wave it in their direction. So, you've got a heavily fortified castle, have you? Men up on the ramparts defending it. Get out the head, wave it around a little, and without even a groan, all of them dead. And what's more... No one even knew why. Everyone who had seen the head died. Ergo, the only people left alive were those who hadn't seen the head, including those on the shoemaker's side. And so all that people really knew was that the shoemaker was more deadly than a cool pint of uranium and light Yagami combined. At first, the opposing armies might find some brave souls to take over from the first wave, to stick their heads out over the castle ramparts to issue the traditional taunting. But when the second wave drops dead, immediately, just as mysteriously, then volunteers for replacements were, suddenly, quite thin on the ground. 
and it occurred to a lot of people to start wondering what the best course of action was when confronted with a man who appeared, for all intents and purposes, to be death incarnate, the destroyer of worlds, the living embodiment of mortality, the greatest and most awful sorcerer the world had ever known. Maybe when confronted with a man like that, the best thing to do was to give him everything he wanted. Especially when what he wanted was a city that belonged to some nobles who didn't have a lot in common with you. And as these sudden, much overdue outbursts of class consciousness took hold, city after city surrendered to the shoemaker. For those who did fight though, well their armies rode out against him, collapsed in their saddles, tumbled from their mystified mounts, and any infantry who had survived were crushed under the hooves of the great stampede of riderless horses. Fortresses, towns, cities, whole provinces yielded to him. Greece and Anatolia bent the knee, and soon only his beloved home stood independent. He was leaving it to the last. He would enjoy taking that place, watching the Varangian guard fall to him as all men did. But as it turned out, he didn't get that pleasure, because the people there saw the writing on the wall. The emperor was old anyway, and it happened he passed away. Naturally or hurried along, it doesn't really matter. And unprompted, the people of the greatest city of Europe sent an invitation to the shoemaker, offering him the once-in-a-lifetime chance to become their new emperor. Desperate to placate him, they even threw the emperor's eldest daughter into the package. What a lucky princess to be the bride to this new dark god. As was not untypical at the time, she didn't get a lot of choice in the matter. Witness the shoemaker now, sitting on the throne of Constantinople, unwilling queen at his side, unwilling army at his command, unwilling church legitimising the marriage and the coronation, unwilling populace bowing down low to him and cheering his every deed. His rise to power was complete. By obsessing, by stalking, by committing one of the most hideous deeds known to humanity, he had risen from simple shoemaker to head of the greatest empire in the world. And they say evil doesn't pay. Those fools, how wrong they were. The triumph of the shoemaker was absolute. The world lay at his feet and the particularly well-crafted shoes he wore on them. Things were looking bad indeed for everyone who wasn't the shoemaker, turned stalker, turned pirate, turned soldier, turned necrophile, turned war leader, and now turned emperor of Byzantium. But the outlook was particularly dire for his new wife. Now, as you know if you've played, say, Crusader Kings, it wasn't exactly easy being a noble's daughter in this period, and you could pretty much expect that the key reason anyone wanted you around at all was to secure some alliance or other for a marriage to some dude you've never seen before. And on this podcast, you can see part two of the Mabinogion series as a prime example. And yet, this was a good deal worse than at least your usual average noble daughter situation. The princess's father wasn't around anymore. Her family weren't in the picture. They couldn't threaten to declare war if events went particularly badly for her. And the shoemaker's power and reputation meant that she couldn't take the other traditional way out. 
you know, befriend a comely knight. Be kidnapped by him. Oh, terrible. Oh, and be carried far away to live in his castle completely against your will. So the princess was a slave to her terrifying new husband. And she was a princess who had come to expect her life to be somewhat better than this. But as it turned out, this princess, and empress now really, had something of the determination of the shoemaker himself. For she did what she needed to. She made herself the best wife to the shoemaker she possibly could. She presented convincing facades of love and lust, concern and care. She was everything a good wife should be. And above all else, she sought to befriend the man. And, oddly enough, well, this wasn't something the shoemaker had ever had before. He'd spent his whole life obsessing over one now-deceased woman. Whatever other relationships he had had been perfunctory at best. But now he had a wife, a queen. She wasn't the perfect woman that Satalia had been, of course. But no one could hold a candle to wondrous, marvellous, beautiful Satalia. Satalia Gull grinned back at him in his sleep sometimes. But unlike Satalia, well, his new queen knew who he was, and she talked to him, laughed with him, kissed him when he came to bed, and when he'd had a hard day casually slaughtering the leaders of an uprising of the city's plebs by, you know, waving the head around, so stressful, she understood the difficulties of his job, and she listened to his complaints. And aside from the obvious wifely duties, they'd have deep and meaningful discussions long into the night. Or so he imagined. But a man as driven and obsessive as him, well, he accounted for 95% of the conversation, and her contributions consisted mostly of, hmm, how interesting. Oh, they didn't. How brave of you, my love. What happened next? Oh, do tell me more about yourself. You're fascinating. But that was fine for him. And over time, the shoemaking fancied that he and the princess were falling deeper and deeper in actual love. He opened up more and more to her. He was desperate to share the pain that he'd felt. The loss of Satalia. Maybe it would drive the princess away. But when he talked of Satalia, it didn't. She listened and asked questions. Questions that were ever more directed and probing, but which to the shoemaker seemed like indications of genuine affection, interest and concern. Of course she was interested. He was the most powerful man in the world. And when she ever so subtly asked how exactly he became so, well, of course he would tell her why. And he told her. All of it. Leaving no repulsive detail out. And somehow she held in her true thoughts, held in all the revulsion, smiled sweetly. She asked him more, asked him more until she truly understood, until she understood all about the necrophilia, about what came of it, about the box and the head and why he had to do it all, and how exactly the head would kill anyone who caught even a glimpse of it, and how it was the source of his power, and how it was wrapped in a box and where that box was kept. And that night the shoemaker went to bed, his obedient, loving wife beside him. Having finally unloaded the burden of all his secrets, he slept a deep and contented sleep. 
and his eyes, his eyes would open precisely once ever again. And now, now if you can remember it, we're almost back to the start. Obviously, after the shoemaker went to sleep, the princess turned empress, found the box, opened it gingerly, took great care not to look at the hideous object, picked it up in folds of cloth, and then, and then she held it in front of the shoemaker's eyes. The last thing he sees is the face. I can't tell you, of course, what that face looks like, but I hope that it was truly hideous. And with that act, the shoemaker's wife brings the total number of justified murder princesses who have featured on this podcast up to 35. When it worked exactly as he described, she summoned the palace guards, who entered the emperor's bedchamber to find the most powerful man the world has ever known dead in his bed, without wounds or any remarks, just like all his own victims. And the empress is standing there, now giving orders. And the men have a sense of what has happened here, but they don't understand exactly. And they could, of course, try to arrest her or something. But, well, he's dead now. She's not. And they don't really know how that happened. And they value their lives. And, let's face it, it wasn't as if they liked the usurper anyway. In fact, they hated him. So it certainly made sense on basically every level to listen to her. And she was capable, as capable as the shoemaker. She got her shit together fast. He was gone, but she still had the thing with her. Now, she could have kept it, I suppose. She could have used its power, ruled in the same manner as the shoemaker. But it didn't take much to not want to keep a hideously cursed, death-bringing head born of necrophilia. You really just have to have the slightest concern for your eternal soul. Or alternatively, the most basic sense of morality. And there's also about a million other reasons why you don't want to keep something like that around. She wanted it gone, as far away as possible, and, crucially, in a place where no one could ever find it. I need the fastest galley and the best crew you've got. Of course, Empress. And then she added as an afterthought. But before we depart, there's somewhere we must go. And unfortunately, the corpse of poor, innocent Satalia was to suffer a further indignity. The Empress reasoned that if that body had produced this, who knows what else it was capable of producing. Yes, he was gone, but the Empress was taking no chances. And so now, after a longer tale than I was expecting, we're finally back at the beginning. To remind you, a beautiful, breathtakingly clear azure sea, a sky just as blue above it, a galley making its way across the gentle waves. They were far away from Constantinople when they dropped anchor. The corpses of Satalia and the shoemaker went first, and after them followed the head in its bag. Then there came that ominous boiling of the sea, the empress ordering them to set off, and then that moment of silence, before the sea exploded. It was as if the water had been hit by a mighty blast at the point the head went in, 
and huge waves rose in all directions, seeming to reach to the sky. The ship was pushed far back by the tremendous violent waves. While greatly damaged, it just about remained afloat. The Empress and her crew watched in astonished horror at the wild waters, which continued to rush up into the sky and away from the head, as if the sea itself was terrified of the monstrous birth that had been unfairly thrust into its domain. But try as it might, the sea could not expel the blasphemous bag, and over the next several hours, physics overcame this infernal system. The waves collapsed back to sea level, but they didn't stop their churn, and instead a mighty whirlpool formed, a whirling roaring of whipping waves, wherein even the very mud of the ocean floor constantly swirled in an endless attempt to get away from it. A maelstrom that would, from that day forth, devour and destroy any ship unlucky enough to fall into its depths. From then on, it was called the Gulf of Satalia, after the unfortunate object of the shoemaker's affections. The Gulf of Anatalia it is called today. Time has much diminished the strength of that whirlpool, and we can hope that after over a thousand years, whatever dark magic created that accursed head has not been able to protect it from the cleansing power of the furious elements. Now the sailors who were to make that place their grave did not include those who crewed the Empress's ship. The galley limped back to Constantinople. What happened to her next? Well, that's not entirely clear. The story we are telling is over at that point. Good had triumphed. Probably. I mean, evil had been defeated at least. Though not before a great deal of suffering. And maybe the Empress was cruel in her rule. Or maybe she would wed again to someone just as evil. But you know what? Let's pretend. The shoemaker was gone. Evil lies defeated. The Empress proved to be a kind, wise and benevolent ruler. And she and all the people of Constantinople lived happily ever after. There we go. Bit of an unusual one this, certainly. Which I suppose is why I chose to tell it. I haven't actually been able to find any other retellings of it, so while I doubt this is the first, you've probably heard it here first. Right, let's go into some background. Where does this story come from? Well, the version I've told is taken from the writings of Walter Mapp's book, De Nugis Curialium, as I said, my Latin's not very good, which has been variously translated as The Courtier's Trifles, or Trinkets for the Court. It was written sometime in the late 12th century, that's the 1100s, and it's the only work of Walter Maps that we have, and it's really a collection of intriguing miscellanea. It's just a bunch of odd tales, some like this one, some a bit more mundane, most of which are kind of presented without much reflection on their truth value. Now, there aren't actually that many texts from this period that talk about folklore or legends that have survived. Much of the canon of British folklore was, as you will well know by now, collected together in 19th century stories. So, in Walter Mapp, along with a few other similar authors, some of whom he actually knew, and whose works I might draw on in the future. So, in him we have 
a bit of an insight into really early stories that cover things like fairies and vampires and ghosts and, of course, necrophiliacly produced murderheads. And loads, loads more, actually. The entry directly after this one in the book is about a merman, for instance. Now, this work was written over many years, a collection of notes, not all of which are as interesting as the bits we find juicy today, but which, at the time, would have certainly interested court gossips. It's written in Latin, and it's difficult for me to really get a handle on whether this could be considered high culture of the time. I mean, there's certainly classical and biblical references aplenty. The man was very well read. But I think this is really more the equivalent of the 14 times of the period, or possibly even the tabloid journalism of the period. A jotting down of whatever random, bizarre shit might be of interest to a select group of readers. And this makes a lot of the work pretty brilliant for modern readers. There's so many fascinating oddities and curiosities in there, and so many more stories from this book I could have told, and maybe I will. Academics who have studied it in detail have thrown around the word satirical, though I don't think that's got quite the same implications as it does talking about modern work. Suffice to say that it wasn't at the time and isn't now designed to be taken 100% seriously. A lot of it's just for fun. Walter Mapp himself was certainly not some hackish nobody though. That wasn't really a possibility with literacy being as it was back then. And he was a pretty high-ranked nobleman, an actual courtier, and more than anything else he was high up in the church. It was said he came from the Welsh marches, which is a word for the borders with England, and he had a role at the court of King Henry II of England. But as was more often than not the case with nobles of that day, he moved internationally, studying at the University of Paris, and later on going to France and Rome on behalf of the king and the church. He held various ecclesiastical positions, which I'd be very hard-pressed to properly distinguish between, but to give you a list of those anyway, Chancellor of the Diocese of Lincoln, Precentor of Lincoln, Canon of St Paul's in London, and finally he rose to become the very grand and slightly villainous-sounding Archdeacon of Oxford. Of course, it's very difficult to get a real sense of the man after so much time has elapsed, but the work suggests that he was unlikely to be some dour churchman, at a time when such positions weren't so much really to do with religious piety and fervour, and were more into top-level management positions of a company today. Now, this is the only book we have which is definitely his. He was for a long while said to have written the Arthurian romances, predating the ones that we typically talk about today, but in a bit of an anticlimax, turned out he didn't. But what we can tell, as the Cambridge History of English and American Literature puts it, is that, quote, Walter Mapp was one of the most versatile and witty talkers in the court circles of that eager and inquisitive age. Unquote. He was a bit of a dude, though I should probably point out that he held some opinions which were pretty abhorrent today, certainly with regards to Jews and women, and he had very strong opinions on morality. Now, the version of the courtier's trifles that comes to us today was taken from manuscripts and largely compiled together by M.R. James, who is most famous, of course, for his ghost stories, but who was, by profession, a medieval scholar. We've actually come across one of his translations before in one of the Christmas Ghosts episodes. Now, while the whole work is readily available in Latin, my Latin is not up to scratch. Mia culpa, reductio ad absurdium, alma mater est, or something. M.R. James's translation is not easily available, and after some exciting adventures with Google Translate, which does apparently cover Latin, but in interesting ways, 
I went with Frederick Tupper's 1924 translation for the story we've just heard. As I said before, I told that story because it's an odd one. Not your typical fairy story, and it also ties in with some themes we've covered before, and by which I mean justified murder princesses, and also decapitated heads, which are, you know, some reoccurring themes. I also like the idea of doing a tale that wasn't set in Britain or Ireland, and Turkey seemed like a reasonable place to start. I think it's important to realise that a lot of the focus of, especially the rich people of the time, was not on these islands. There are ideas that kick around about how people in the past were quite isolated and insular, and while of course there were physical limitations to travel for the poor, those who can travel perhaps weren't as defined by national boundaries even as they are today. Rulers were pretty much interchangeable across the continent regardless from where they originally came. Rome was still very important through the church, and this was a time when the links between the rest of Europe, the Byzantine Empire, the Middle East, North Africa, were such that even describing them as links is a bit misleading, as often they were just part of one system. Now that's not saying that things were exactly always friendly. This was the time of the Crusades after all, and alliances there were really mixed up over the centuries. Sometimes crusaders from North and West Europe would aid the Byzantine Empire, and at other times... Well, those same crusaders would sack Constantinople and then fight amongst themselves. Because they were really fickle like that and it wasn't just as straightforward as some kind of Christian war against Islam. Now, the place in the story does of course exist, as I mentioned, and it was known as the Gulf of Satalia for many years. And that naming is probably just a simple pronunciation difference, close enough to Anatalia. It was an area that people travelling to the Holy Land, be it on pilgrimage or on crusade, might well have passed through. And there they might have heard the tale of the whirlpool. So yes, to the story. It obviously has very clear parallels with the story of Perseus and the head of Medusa. And Walter Mapp is aware of this, and he mentions it in his telling. He also chucks in a couple of other Greek myths, comparing the whirlpool to Charybdis. And the area around here is where some of the myths happened, some of the Jason stories, for instance. Now, while the central motif of a killer head is similar, of course, to the Medusa legend, I don't see it as a direct read across. This isn't just a simple retelling of that legend. It's really its own thing, with the whole shoemaker and the birthing of it completely new. Now, this is the earliest version of this story we have. It does crop up in other works from about the same period, but ever so slightly later, in a work by Roger of Howden and another by Gervais of Tilsbury, who were also closely connected to the same court. So there's likely some sharing between the authors going on here. The versions are all subtly different, but Walter Mapps is the most complete. Now, a bit later, this story crops up again, this time, though, in the Arthurian legends, in the Vulgate cycle. That's, oddly enough, one of the ones that Map was meant to have written, but he didn't. But you can start to see why those connections might have happened. Anyway, the version there is quite different again. It doesn't have a shoemaker, it relocates the action to Cyprus, which actually makes a, maybe a bit more sense, given its relationship to the Gulf of Antalya. But then the usual team of Arthurian knights is brought in to solve the situation, rather than any princess. And a lot more details given as to how they do that, using magical ointment, a blindfolded horse, a sheet to chuck over the body, and then finally it's none of the Merlin who tells them where to get rid of the thing. But it doesn't have a justified murder princess, so where is the fun in that? 
And that's about it for this episode. Except, I suppose, for one more thing. Now, I've only found this in one source and can't verify it anywhere else. But apparently, when the Knights Templar were on trial, and the Knights Templar, just in case you're not familiar with them, but you probably are, the Knights Templar were a pretty powerful order of knights, which was kind of an international military and trading organisation that doesn't have a good parallel today, kind of like a multinational with its own army. Well, anyway, the leaders of the Knights Templar were falsely accused and convicted of being anti-Christian devil worshippers in the early 1300s. They were done so on charges that were entirely invented, no doubt about it, but since then there's been a tremendous amount of exciting conspiracy theories and speculation about them, about what they really discovered in Jerusalem, and that they really were worshipping devils. The Knights Templar are the kind of ur-conspiracy theory that's never gone away. So anyway, at the famous trial of these knights, one of the accused, almost certainly after some torture, said that another member of the Order had pretty much carried out the whole plot of this story, loving a dead woman, her giving birth to the monster head that killed people, and he had only been stopped from sacking Constantinople because the head had been stolen from him by a former nurse who had made the mistake of looking at it when on a ship which subsequently went down, leading to the whirlpool. This is closer to the Gervais of Tillsbury version of the story, by the way. And this, this was precisely the kind of juicy and entirely believable evidence that the Inquisitors looking for Templars were after. So, the story we have covered today may have played a very small role in bringing down the Knights Templar. This was one of my highlights of research. I was not expecting this and was absolutely delighted when I stumbled across it. Okay, I think we've had enough. I'll leave that there. Thanks for listening. I appreciate this has been a long one, even by my standards. I hope it's been interesting enough, though. And yes, once again, apologies for the time between these. I'm making no further statement on that, except to reiterate how much I really want to keep making them. And that leads nicely on to me giving my usual thanks to everyone that has continued to support the podcast. If you want to support it, reviews are the best way to do that for free. They really do seem to affect the algorithms that get the podcast noticed and in front of people to grow the audience. So thanks to everyone who has written one. There is, of course, also a Patreon with members episodes. And as usual, given the release schedule, I'll reassure you that I only take donations when there is a new Patreon episode released. There are three of these at the moment, and another one, which will be another Walter Map tale, will follow soonish. Thanks to everyone who has signed up since the last episode. That is Jen M, Josh Newman, Amy Muggleston and Leon Robbins. Thank you all so much. So, next episode, we'll be turning to the former industrial capital of, well, basically the world, the northern metropolis of Manchester and its surrounding areas. Ghosts, fairies, or maybe even a mummy, await. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Bye.